So we got 130 questions from our congregation. We're going to spend the next five weeks answering those questions as best we can and uh, responding to those questions anyway. And actually, the idea for this series came from our college ministry at Basic. I was up there one night on a panel answering some of the questions that they had, and there was so much energy and so many uh, conversations afterwards. I, I, one of the things we thought was, we need to bring this to Orchard. So... Uh, uh, Kurt and I are here to uh, do the first week. Uh, some of you may not know the history Kurt and I have. Uh, we have a long history. Kurt and Kara, when they were in college, were the first uh, two of the four first uh, partners with me in youth ministry when we started a youth group when I came to town in 1985. So picture Kurt as a college student and his wife Kara, and they were some I of the, the same. Yeah, he looked the same. That's it's not a hard picture. Uh, and then. Uh, uh, Kurt and I, actually, uh, a few years later, we co-taught like this morning after morning after morning on Sunday mornings for uh, a young adult group called the New Frontiers uh, Group. And so uh, we've co-taught a lot in uh, my 27 years here, mm-hmm. but we haven't done it for a decade or so right. now. So uh, we're looking forward to it. This series is uh, important. It's critical to our church, I think, because what the teaching team always tries to do is answer the questions we think you have. Well, this time we can actually try to answer the questions you actually had. And so I'm excited about that. And uh, we want you to know that God loved good questions. God was not afraid of questions. All through the Bible, he loved good questions. He didn't turn his back on people who asked questions. In fact, he loved questions. And so uh, we at Orchard love questions, and we hope we can answer uh, some of them. One of the interesting things, though, Kurt, to me, is like how Jesus answered questions. Because... Uh, I've recently done some thinking about that, and he didn't always straight up answer the questions he was asked. You're going to tell us a little bit about that. Right. In fact, depending on uh, where you look, um, some people think he answered three out of 183 questions that that were asked of him uh, in a a sort of straightforward, here's the answer kind of way. Most of the questions that were asked of him, he answered by asking a question. Uh, What does the scripture say about that? Um, 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 What have you heard about that? And and so he would he would engage people. And some of the thinking is he didn't want to just say, well, there it is. He wanted to say, now, come with me. Come with me on a journey of thinking about this. So, I, I don't know if these guys will actually believe that part. Just really? Minute, but I was standing there. I remember Doug came into my office. He's answering an end of the world question out at Grundy. He and Ed are out there. They're going to be here this week. So uh, he came into my office this week. He said, Dave, well, how would you answer these end of the world questions? I said, well, I would answer like Jesus. Jesus said, I don't know. It's the father's business. So, sorry. No, that's <laughs> great. This is how it's going to be, by the way. <laughs> this is what we like about each other. So, so uh, here's a story that you guys know, right? Jesus is in Samaria. He's walking along the road, and he, uh, and he sits down because uh, it's hot. It was probably around noon. And he sits down, and there's a woman there, and she's there to get some water. And he thinks, well, that's unusual because she's getting water uh, later than she should be getting water. And, and she, so he says to her, hey, can I have some water? And she thinks, well, that's unusual because here's this Galilean man asking a uh, Sam- Samarian woman for some water. And, and so uh, she's, he's, uh, she says, okay, I'll give you some water. Um, and then he says to her something like, if you knew who I was, you'd ask for water and I'd give it to you and you'd never be thirsty again. And she's like, sounds awesome. I want that. And he says, okay, go get your husband and come back and get that water. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, this is a long lead up for what I'm getting to. And he says, yeah, I know that. And then she says, you're a prophet. I got a question for you. 
We don't know exactly what was behind why she had a question for him right there. Was it like she was storing up this question? If I ever run into a prophet, I know exactly what I'm going to ask him. Or, or was it she was trying to change the subject because she had just like been trapped in this you've had five, five husbands thing and she's like, oh, oh, I got a question for you over there. Look over there. Right? But we do know she asked him a question. She had it right on the tip of her tongue. And this was the question she asked. She said, my people worship on this mountain. We in Samaria, we think this is the holy place, the place where the sun shines. Your people worship on this other mountain over there. Which mountain is it, prophet man? Right? Which mountain is it? And this is the style of question that comes to Jesus all the time. And it's the style of question that we still ask all the time. A lot of our questions that we ask are questions that are that or that. This or that. A or B. Is it all over here or is it all over there? Right? It's the, it's the way our mind works because it's really easier for our brains, as small and fragile as they are, to, to, to put something in a very definitive box and say, this is the answer to that question. So, Jesus' answer to that question, this or that, was what? You guys know? Neither one. Neither one. You guys are going to worship not on a mountain in a place, uh, in a spot. You guys are going to worship in spirit and in truth. You're going to worship sort of out here, above and outside of that question. And that little diagram, I think, says a lot about how we uh, approach it, how we're approaching this, how, how uh, Jesus answered questions. So think about some other questions. Pharisees come up to him and say, Hey, Jesus. Can you divorce for any reason or for only certain reasons? This is a debate raging among the Pharisees. Because the, because the law of Moses said, you can, you can give a certificate of divorce uh, if your wife, um, and I can't remember the exact Hebrew of it, I looked it up this week, if your wife does these things. And, and, the, and, the, and the scholars were saying, wait, does that mean any things or does it mean specific kinds of things? So they came to him with that question. And, is it, and, and they said it like this, is it this? Or is it that? Is it this uh, uh, Pharisee or is it that one? He says it's neither one. It's neither one. I, I tell you the truth. You guys were supposed to be together all the time. You guys were supposed to create oneness and never leave it. You guys were supposed to uh, um, become something like the Trinity is uh, and, 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 and not leave it. Uh, so another question. There's a guy and he's blind. And, and the Pharisees say to Jesus, Okay, Jesus, tell me the answer to this one. Was he, is he blind because... He did sin or because his parents did sin? Which one was it? If you tell us the answer, it's going to be very easy for us then to put it, put it in a box. And what was his answer? His answer was, well, it wasn't either one. It wasn't either one. He was born blind because he's, he's going to show the glory of God through his life. That's why he was born the way he was born. So, uh, so a whole bunch of the questions that we've been asked and that we continually ask as people are like if we made a continuum here. Is it here or is it here? And often our answer, uh, Christ's answer, and our answer as a church needs to be, it's neither here nor here, right? It's up here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. How many times are we in the rooms back there and, and we draw this exact thing on the board? Exactly. It, it's a continuum. Exactly. And people want to know, where are, where's Orchard going to land on end days prophecy? And our answer would be, like Jesus, that's for the Father to know. I, Jesus said, I don't even know. Right. Right. All right. Okay. Now you're going to answer some actual questions. I'm going to answer some simple ones first. <laughs> uh, we were going to start with the simple ones. Uh, uh, so, the, you know, a lot of these were simple. And uh, 
and, and these happen to be the simple church questions. So uh, the first question was uh, that I'm going to answer five quick ones. When was the church made? Uh, I actually got it wrong in some writing I did a couple weeks ago, and Al DeBeer came and told me I was wrong. Uh, December 23rd, 1962 is the first service in this building, and months before that, In 1962, uh, this church started in a living room on Clearview Drive over here in the pastor's house. So 50 years ago. And in fact, we have charter members in the room right here, and uh, we are going to do our 50th anniversary at the Gallagher Blue Dorn this uh, uh, August at the gathering. And so that's going to be a powerful time. Uh, So 50 years, Al Moss was the founding pastor and stayed. uh, Really, we've only had three senior pastor roles, uh, Al Moss, uh, Bill Rosenberg, Ed Baker, and now Ed and I. Um, how many people come every Sunday morning? Great question. I'm glad you asked. We had to figure it out. 1,320 people is the average number of people who are on in this building at worship services since January till now. 1,320. If we add the uh, theater and we add our other site, Lincoln Center, it's about 1,600 people average. So half the weeks were over 16, half the weeks were under 16. 1,600 people. Well, how many people then call Orchard their spiritual home? We're believing about three to 4,000 people uh, call Orchard their spiritual home. And uh, the reason we believe that is research is telling us that average core people at Orchard uh, and churches across North America actually get to church less often because of our affluence and our traveling. That uh, a few years ago it was 38 Sundays a year, and now it's 32 Sundays a year. So I watch some of our elders, I watch some of our people and the lives they have, and I'm going, I hope they do get here 32 weeks a year. Uh, they're busy. What is the purpose of leaving church open so late with nobody in the building? I thought, somebody's like watching us really close. <laughs> it's like, that's a great question. Why would you leave the building open with nobody in here? Well, here's the, here's the answer. We've thought about it a lot. The answer is, we're a volunteer-friendly organization. Volunteers drive this thing, not our staff. And so the reason that um, we leave it open is we need our volunteers, Sunday school teachers, our volunteer coffee house people, be able to get in the building and um, do their work uh, from 7 a.m. till 10 p.m. So it is true there are once in a while I'll come here in the evening and uh, there's nobody here and the doors are wide open and we're okay with that at this point. We have not had much theft or uh, problems with it at all. Good question. I have a new question. You don't get to ask questions. What? Does the person who locked the door still live right next door? Yes. We have caretakers who watch the property and lock the doors next Who door. is that? <laughs> I, I didn't think it was... You a just trick. can't go on like this. <laughs> I was uh, curious. I wasn't trying uh, to trick uh, you. Billy and Ariel Patton have uh-huh. just moved in. And uh, uh, they've just moved in. You're just lucky I happen to have those names. <laughs> uh, why, when will we pave the rest of the parking lot? Great question. I heard that laugh. Uh, we don't know. Uh, two issues. It's up here. Yeah. <laughs> two issues. Uh, one is it's at the wrong elevation. And um, we would have paved it if it was as simple as 
uh, having some concrete trucks come out and do it, and we could have afforded that. But because of our next, when we build a sanctuary, a bigger sanctuary, it's going to change the elevation of the parking lot. And so until we can change that elevation, we either have to change a lot of elevation and not build, or we have to do it all at once. So it's more costly than just putting down uh, concrete. So I, I hope that answers your question. It's just it's going to take a lot of work to get that at the right elevation for our next building project. Does Orchard do private baptisms? This is a great question. Four times a year, we do infant baptisms up front across all of our services. But what we've discovered is for some young families, grandpa and grandma come on a different Sunday from out of state. And so we have started doing more and more private baptisms where grandpa and grandma and the uncles and aunts, and we go to the prayer room, and uh, we actually do that when it works for families because of our philosophy of we want to serve families well. And so, uh, yes, we, uh, we do private baptisms. A lot of you we introduced this morning, this baptism at the lake. We also do um, like an off-service uh, dedication for parents um, where, uh, you know, some people are from a background where they don't uh, baptize infants, but they go to God's word and they say, we want to dedicate these kids, which is a lot of the same process, but we want to dedicate it. And so we also do that in a, in a fall event. So, again, the same philosophy. We want to serve young families in the best way we can as they follow Christ according to God's word. Okay, now we're going to change, and we're excited. I, uh, Kurt and I are here today, and Ed and Doug are in Lincoln Center and Grundy. And then next week we flip. So Kurt and I take what we're doing, and then they're going to be here. Um, and we wanted to start here with these salvation questions. And so there are uh, five or six salvation questions I'm going to read to you, and then we're going to actually use this process of not answering them exactly here in the beginning. We're going to talk about more of the bigger issue around them. But here are the, uh, I guess it's five questions that were asked about salvation. I know we are saved by grace, but what does it mean to be a Christian? Great question. How do we use words like Christian? If you were born and raised in an African tribe, not exposed to any other humans, and not knowing, and knowing nothing of Christ and his grace, are you going to go to heaven? Will today's loyal Jewish followers go to heaven? Do good people in non-Christian faiths perish? My God would not do that, would he? We are going to answer these by using the following outline. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to, uh, we're not avoiding them, but we're going to start in a different place. And we're going to start with uh, an outline called uh, saved from, saved by, and saved for. Saved from, saved by, and saved for. And so uh, I'm going to start with this uh, saved from. And uh, the first thing we have to understand, if we're going to define Christian and following Christ and becoming a Christian and who's in and who's out and all that, we have to understand real clearly what we're saved from. And, you know, in some ways it's real easy to answer. We're saved from sin. We're saved from sin. A lot of times I'll be sharing with someone uh, around town or in my office uh, and they'll want to know the answer to some of these. And I have what's called the Roman road marked in all of my Bibles begins on Romans 3.23, which says this, uh, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then right next to that, 3.23, it says 6.23. So I go over to 6.23, and the verse is this, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And right by 6.3, I have 5.8 mentioned, so I go back a page. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what are we saved from? We're saved from sin. But there's more. Isaiah, Isaiah says this. Um, Isaiah says, uh, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Christ was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. So we're also saved from sin and shame and like unpeacefulness. Unpeacefulness. And then uh, the reason I came to Christ, we could go on, we could spend the whole time on what we're saved from. Uh, I was saved, uh, uh, came to Christ, began to follow Christ at UNI when I was looking at my life and I realized without an ultimate purpose, my life was meaningless. And so one of the things I had to throw up here, not only sin and shame, we're saved from sin and shame, but we're saved from a life of meaninglessness, purposelessness. We get to do something that's eternal. So those are the things we're saved from as we start to follow Christ. So we're saved from sin, shame, brokenness, guilt, and a future without God, a future apart from God. We're saved from those things. Now we're saved by, Kurt, uh, I'm going to give this one to you, but it's so simple. We're saved by, you know, Jesus on the cross, his substitutionary death, where he died on the cross to pay our price. Our sins were put on him. We're saved by Jesus. Jesus. Sundays. We got it. Yes. <laughs> we are. All right. Next. True. Okay, but I like to make things more complicated than that. My... Uh, my staff calls me the bringer of darkness. Anytime there's some light that someone can see something, I, I make it confusing. Um, I want to respond two ways to that, saved by Jesus and his substitutionary death. First of all, this is not one of the two ways. First of all, I want to say, you're right. Yeah. You're true. That's awesome. So I'm going to write down what you said. You said he was a substitute. Yeah. Um, so that that's... That is great, and that is one picture. That is one way of, of expressing uh, what Jesus did. And, and I was reading this really fascinating uh, uh, book by a, a Jewish scholar who was saying, um, for us, we, we say there is a truth that is bigger than our minds can handle, and, and we picture it like a gemstone. And we take the gem, and we, tur- and we say, wow, that's a really awesome face of the gem. And we turn it and say, whoa, there's another awesome face of the gem, and there's another, and there's another. And the thing about Jesus' death, the thing about Jesus paying for our sins is uh, admit to yourself that you've thought about this and like, well, how does that actually work? Or, or why was that the way that it worked? And so all, all through time, um, we as Christians have come up with great gemstone faces that explain some part of what uh, Jesus did. And you just expressed one of them, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. That is, that is absolutely a true thing. But, but think about other ways in which our songs talk about it and our words talk about it. And, and what you're doing when you think about other ways is, is just saying, wow, well, Jesus' death was a little bit too big for me to fit into that one thing. So I'm going to say something else. So, so another thing that we would say is um, there's some kind of ransom uh, picture that goes on. So I turned the gem. I didn't change the truth. I turned the gem and I said, there's a ransom. Jesus, uh, in this picture, uh, uses himself to free some sort of captive. There's, there's somebody being held hostage uh, and, and they can't get out on their own. And Jesus uses himself to ransom those hostages. And then, and then, uh, in this picture, if you would fully develop it, Jesus, uh, lets those ransom, uh, those slaves go, and now he is the captive. And then he tricks the captor by dying, 
And now the captor doesn't have anything. And then he rises again. Right. So now he has freed them and he's freed himself and everything's good. Another another picture of what happened to Jesus, why Jesus was doing what he was doing. And I know one that you use a lot that you like is redeem. Yeah. This is a sort of financial model of the same thing, right? That, that there was some, uh, debt that was owed. There was, there was some, some way in which, uh, we had done something that got us into, uh, a debtor's prison, if you will, or, or, or somehow somebody needed to pay a price. And then Jesus came along and paid a price, paid some money and got us out of there. Sure. Sometimes I'll teach. We have a pile of moral debt in all my sins and all my brokenness I've created. And who's going to pay for that pile of moral debt? Somebody's got to pay Somebody's got to pay, and Jesus pays. That's right, right. That's another good picture of what happened on the cross. Or uh, some, some people really love this. Uh, it's, it's Christus Victor, the, the Christ as victor. And in this model, in this idea, in this picture, um, it's really death that's the kind of enemy or, or the kind of thing that's winning. Death, right? Yeah, and, you, and you've heard this. Death has come to us. Death has come to the world. And somebody needs to conquer death. Somebody needs to make, make it so death isn't the final winner. And so Jesus, by dying and then raising again, shows that he has conquered death. He has, he has made death not the final thing, not the final stage. Um, and so we, we have, a very related to that is the conqueror. Well, how in the world do you spell conquer? I think like that. Well, Dave and I both we can't read it anyway. Yeah. So it's we have okay. the, both have the same philosophy. Write messy and it, and it all fixes your problems. <laughs> There's a conquering thing, right? Some people think of Jesus as sort of uh, uh, kicking down the door, right? Of, of, of the gates of hell and going in and, and taking things back. Jesus as conqueror. Uh, and definitely he did that as he was on the cross. He, he was strong in his conquering. There's, you want more? Uh, one more. <laughs> oh, I, have, I suppose you have a whole list. Oh, yeah. yeah. This, this gem is amazing. This gem is deep and big. There's the pen, I bet I spelled that one wrong. There's the perfect penitent, penitent, the perfect, uh, sacrifice. This, in this idea, it's, it's saying that we come to God and we confess our sins and we, and we, and we apologize for them. But we never do it fully or perfectly. We never do it in a way that's, that's, that's totally pure. And so God can't really ever do his work of forgiving in a totally perfect and pure way. But Jesus, being innocent, being perfect, was able to perfectly say, I, I apologize, I, I confess, and I, and I uh, repent of my sins. And so God was able to perfectly come in behind that and, and, and restore us all. So, Kurt, I hear us saying, I hear you saying, the answer in simple terms is Jesus. As we turn the gem, Jesus as substitute, Jesus as ransom payer, Jesus as redeemer, Jesus as victor, conqueror, penitent, mm-hmm. Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But, but let's not settle for just substitute. Right. Let's understand we're, uh, we're saved by Jesus, and there's many pictures and metaphors that he himself and the Bible uses. Right. To help us get the depth of this, which we can't ever really get. Right. Now, can I push you one farther? Okay. <laughs> so well, the one farther I want to push you is to say, that's okay, all of those things are true. But I, wanna, I want you to think about something even bigger than that. I want you to think about that, that what the work Jesus did was part of God's plan, God's bigger plan. Uh, um, we have a tendency in, in, the, in the faith, in, uh, in North America especially, we have a tendency to say this is the story. The story is about Jesus saving me and yeah. bringing me there. Yeah. And I want to expand it a little bit and say, 
I think this story is more about God than it is about us. I think the story is about God deciding that he wants to restore things, that he wants to restore uh, the earth, that he wants to restore his creation, that he wants to restore the relationships that he has with us, that he wants us to restore the relationships that we have with each other, that he's thinking of this bigger system, this bigger picture. So the picture I had this week um, was uh, the Jenga tower. You might guys remember the game Jenga, right? Somebody pulls uh, the stick out and the whole tower collapses. And I, and I picture that's what happened in Eden. We pull the stick out, and there's just the whole thing collapses. And then God's standing there, sitting there, saying, all right, what am I going to do? And he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pick up all those sticks, and I'm going to restore the tower. And one of the things that's in this tower is our relationship with him. That's one of the things he's restoring. That's one of the things that Jesus was fixing, was our direct relationship with God. But God was restoring this whole bigger Jenga tower, this whole bigger thing. Yeah, so... Um, if we if we put it back in this drawing, this would be my personal relationship with Jesus. This is like my salvation or my family's salvation, my personal. But this is this is the other side. It's like uh, he's redeeming back the world. He's making the world the way he wanted it, like back in the garden, the kingdom. Right. And so the question can be, which is it? And the evangelical church has been on a journey here. Of saying it's about personal faith. No, it's about um, loving and caring for the poor and rebuilding our systems and being a godly world. Mm-hmm. And which is it? Which is it? And again, we see the Bible saying it's both. Right. It's right. both my personal faith and it's uh, this bigger thing God is wanting to do around the world. When Jesus prayed his prayer, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That was this side. We want to bring thy kingdom. Right, right, right. But when he said to Zacchaeus, you know, you must be born again. That was this side. Right. He was working on both sides. Right, right. And, and, or, or in John 3.16, the verse that the, the rainbow hair guy puts yeah. up, right? Yeah. For yeah. God so loved the world. God loved the world. And that's the, that's the starting point of the story. God loved the world. Yeah. And he didn't want to see it wrecked. And so then he sent his son. And, and through his son, he was redeeming the world that he loved. Yep, yep. Okay, so we're uh, saved uh, from... Sin, shame, and brokenness were saved by Jesus and God's plan, which has a lot of elements, and then we're saved for, Kurt. Right. Um, so I, I think we're saved for participating with God in the restoration of, of what he had made originally. Participating with God in bringing the kingdom back. And I don't know, and, and there's a lot of questions that you could ask about that statement. I don't know when that's going to happen. And, and, and it's something I've been careful to never make a statement about. I don't know when the kingdom is coming back. I just know the kingdom is coming back. And I know that, that, I, that God has put me on a mission that says, your job is to help me bring the kingdom back. So it, my Jenga picture doesn't work as well here. But, but if you think about, as God starts putting the tower back together, individual pieces have a role that they can play in helping to bring it together. They can help hold on to each other or something like that. Um, they can play a little role in bringing this back together. So I think, uh, I think um, the four, the question about four, is, is really super important. Because in part, parts of my life where I wasn't clear about the four... I really wasn't as passionate as I am today. I wasn't as passionate about um, about actually making a difference. I was much, much more passionate about uh, specific words and phrases and things that were in the Bible, uh, trying to uh, uh, get them right, in a sense. Trying to, trying to do everything I could to make sure I was uh, 
um, exactly lined up with what God said. Now, I still, I still really believe that's important because I think uh, that's a part of my restoration of all things. But it gives me a whole different sense of mission, a whole different sense of purpose to think that I'm um, actually doing something that's part of the story. That I'm not just trying to get it my part right. I was uh, in the car a few weeks ago and I heard this uh, NPR um, article on this amazing thing in California. They, uh, through government subsidies, bought a whole gob of um, hybrid cars. Thousands of hybrid. I think it was 2,000. Anyone else hear this article? 2,000 hybrid cars. And, and they put them in a garage and they sat there. And then... They followed the letter of the law exactly right. So they took out the manual of the hybrid car and it said, this is exactly how you maintain this car. Every three months, you've got to change the oil. And every so many months, you've got to change all these other fluids. And they did that perfectly. They took every one of those 2,000 cars, they would change the oil, they would change the wiper fluid, all that. They never came out of this garage. They were never driven one time. They were, they were just being stored there. So they were following the letter of the law. They were doing the thing to the car that made it work. But the car never drove. And that's the thing for me that, that, that picture as they were talking about it for me was like, this is how I was. This was how my life was. Uh, I was a car that, that I followed the letter of the law very well and I never drove. I never, I never had a sense of I am doing something with God to restore things. Were you wanting to interrupt me? Um, well, I'm going to take us. I'm going to actually do my closing here. You are? Of our time. What uh, happened? <laughs> uh, so back to the questions. If you were born and raised in an African tribe and not exposed to Jesus, let's think about what we just said. If you were a loyal Jewish follower but didn't know Christ, I'm assuming, or do good people in non Christian faiths perish. How, how, would, how would we answer that? One, we would say we're not going to draw a line on the continuum and say, we're not going to say, you're in, you're out. That's not, who, that's not how we're going to answer that. We're going to answer it back by how we've answered. We know the answer in some way relates to Jesus. And we're not going to determine how that is because we're not God. In some way it relates there. And Kurt, there was this question. And so we're not going to go, yeah, they're in, they're out, they're in, they're out. We're not going to do that because that, that's a role only God as judge can play. Kurt, there was one more question. I'll give you a minute. Uh, someone asked, are we a prevailing church? Or what is a prevailing church? Can you do that in a minute? No. <laughs> but I could do it in more. Uh, so I think a prevailing church is a church that has that kind of life, the kind of life that it gets out on the road and puts the top down and, and, and explores and, and, and does things that actually bring the kingdom. Uh, it's, a, it's a church that's filled with spirit. Um, I think it's not a church that's just trying to not break the rules. It's not a church that's just trying to get in, get the ticket into heaven or, um, or be nice to a lot of people or um, raise a lot of money or have a lot of power. It's a church that is active in the restoration of the kingdom of God. That's, that's doing what you said in the prayer where Jesus said, uh, your kingdom come here on earth. I think a prevailing church is the kind of church that is filled with life in a way that they bring the kingdom. Um, and, and part of that kingdom, one of the mountains of that kingdom, is our own sanctification, our own purity, our own relationship with God and, and bringing that. But it's not, it's not the entire story. Yeah. Um, God is doing something really big uh, in the universe. Yep, yep. We knew this, and you're going to pray in just a minute. We knew this. We knew when we started to dive into these questions that people would leave with more questions than answers. 
And as a teaching team, we were okay with that. It's okay. And so if we push some buttons and you go, whoa, Dave, this, this we got to hear talk more about that. That would be a good thing. And uh, so uh, we're, we're not we're not worried about that. We'll uh, get back to more questions. We have five weeks of answering questions. And Kurt, would you pray at this point? I would. Heavenly Father, thanks first. Thanks for loving the whole world enough that you said, I think it's worth it. I think we should put it back together. And your plan from all of eternity was how you were going to restore, how you were going to put it together. And that plan included sending your son, sending a part of you to come here and, and live a life and interact with people and heal and pray and teach. And then to uh, give himself over and allow evil to bring him to a cross. Allow evil to fully express itself and nail him there and torture him. Allow evil to separate him from from you for a little bit. And then for him to say, well, that was not the end. You You did everything you could, but I'm still here. And rise again and... And walk around on the earth for a little while and then go back to heaven and sit at the right hand of God and and say, all right, now let's go. I pray that then the spirit that you sent that's supposed to show us how to live with you will bring us life, will will bring us energy, will, will bring us motivation that we are going to say, we're working with that kind of God. We're working with the God that defeated it, that substituted that paid. And I pray that that kind of life will just sweep through us and we will be a powerful, prevailing church. Amen.